If we expect our stories to truly portray European core values, identity, and politics, we need journalists where news doesn't make it out of local headlines. This podcast is about those stories, how they have been told by underground reporters, and why they're relevant to all of us around Europe. Let me put things into context. We at Arwe Europe are traveling to eight underrepresented cities when it comes to journalistic opportunities through a project called The Circle. So far, The Circle has been to Tbilisi, we're now in Porto, and next up are Vilnius, Lyon, Naples, Helsinki, Mostar, and Pristina. Bom dia from Porto, it's Jada, a producer at Arwe Europe, and I will be guiding you through our trip around the continent on the hunt for stories that most likely you haven't heard about. I'm joined here by Tina Lee and Luis Fernandez. Tina Lee is editor-in-chief at unbiasednews.org and head of publications at Hostwriter, a network that helps journalists collaborate across borders. She's originally from the USA, but lives in Berlin, Germany, where she writes, researches, edits, and podcasts about human rights, migration, politics, and the climate crisis. While Luis is an executive producer here in Porto with over 10 years of experience in working closely with artists, musicians, filmmakers, and other producers. How are you? Great. Happy to be here at the Faculty of Letters. Yeah, welcome to Porto. Bem-vindo, as we say here. Louis, you're a media maker in the city and you're adamant that the city is better than Lisbon. Tell us why. Three words. Oh, it's <laughs> complex. I, I, I honestly tell it as a joke. Um, but um, I think because of its scale, it's still a very multicultural city, but not the capital, not this... A metropolitan city scale as Lisbon. It's also a city that you can do things for the first time. You can look at your worldwide reference or European reference and projects that you want to implement. I think you still have the space to do it. Well, that was a little bit more than three words. Um, anyways, do you think that that applies to the media scene too here in Porto? I think it is because especially... In the media scene, I think there's a huge space or a huge opportunity or a huge gap to fill. Uh, there are projects, for example, as Canal 180 or JPN or the Petrias, that is like um, a wing site from the main newspaper called Publico, uh, more focused on youth, youth culture or uh, youth articles. Uh, but I think uh, uh, Porto was always a city with... Um, a voice or a strong opinion uh, or a critical position. And I think there's also a lack or a space to fill a gap on the media scene. Well, you know, when you say Porto has a distinctive voice, what type of stories come to your mind? I think uh, the city is uh, so creative and so rich uh, into their scenes that there are huge opportunities to um, uh, to tell stories about. And when, when sometimes you see like, external uh, media players or external magazines or entities looking at the city. Oh, wow, there's this city near the sea in Portugal. There's so much to explore food-wise, people-wise, creative-wise, design-wise, architecture-wise, even kind of political-wise. Um, and But sometimes we don't uh, find our own strategies or our own platforms to amplify what we do best. And we always get excited when someone comes from the outside and say, oh, you're doing great. All over Europe, um, when you get into smaller cities, yeah, there's some self-confidence about doing things that are unique. When I arrived, I also noticed like the radio here is really good. You know, it played a lot of songs I haven't heard in ages, but also not hits, not like top new hits. And I already could feel, feel a little bit like 
Okay, it's a little bit uh, off the beaten track here. Luis, you've been an executive producer for more than 10 years in the city and working abroad. Uh, what's your take on becoming a creative in Porto? I think it's a place to be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, because I kind of, uh, my, my wish um, job or position was to be like selling the city for creatives across the world to come and to relate and to collaborate with the ones that are born and raised here or taking education here or choosing the city to work. Because I think, again, being a second city, we don't have this culture of uh, having a lot of agencies here, people that are working here in the creative scene. And when you say creative scene, it could be uh, directors or designers or illustrators. They are always with a more artistic approach rather than a business oriented approach so they make them more unique and more special and more kind of attractive and the ones that are in Porto working probably are working more abroad into uh, broader markets or outside markets rather to the internal market so they could also they could be more artistic than commercial and it's kind of special because you're not consumed by the internal market of the city or you're not consumed by the internal market of the country. I've noticed that too, actually. I don't know if you think that's the same, but I've been, I've lived, for example, in Atlanta where a lot of bands are um, before they get big. Once they get big, they leave, right? But you get to see them when they're developing, when they get the special creative voice and they're popular locally. And then later, once they're on like the scene and they're selling out concerts and they're really big, it's often not as exciting as the time when they're developing. So I think that's another role that second cities can play this kind of breeding ground for things before it gets into this kind of like, okay, now we need to get serious and be commercial. You know, it, it breeds this kind of creativity without having that, uh, those constraints. For example, even the word creative uh, in Lisbon, I have several friends and people around that, oh, I'm in the creative scene, so I'm probably a creative director or I'm a creative in an agency that I'm, I, I do com I do a lot I have a lot of creativity but I do a lot of commercial work and when you talk about creative scene in Porto it means that you're a graphic designer you have a studio you do posters you do campaign you, you, you don't do campaigns in terms of business oriented you just want to do like the best design ever and the poster and if you are an illustrator you just want to do your thing and it's not about the clients it's not about what people are asking you to do it's more about what you really want to do yeah, thank you, Luis, for that. It, it is really inspiring to see the way you talk about the creative profession. But at the same time, um, even cynically, I think that, you know, without money, that cannot happen. Money makes the world go round. We've been experiencing in, in the city talking to creatives and journalists, especially that are a series of structural barriers that people uh, are facing, especially when they're really young, when they're just starting out without a strong uh, network. Tina, you've been in touch with, you know, the young creatives and professionals we've been working with here in Porto. Can you tell us more about that? Well, in terms of journalism, what some of the people that we've been working with as part of the Circle Project have flagged is that in order to get a professional license to be a journalist, you need to complete a series of tasks. It costs some money to get this license, but also you need to serve in some unpaid internships. That is obviously a barrier, a structural one because the kind of people who are able to work for several years in unpaid internships are not representative of the whole community, right? Mm -hmm. There's only some people that are able to do that kind of thing. I also have uh, been listening to the conversation that they've been having about how 
the definition of journalist is kind of curtailed and that there's some dispute over whether, for example, cultural criticism would be considered actually journalism. And I think that's interesting because I don't know who that, uh, I don't know who that helps really <laughs> to, to narrow this definition. I'm not sure. I guess it can protect the role for certain people, make their job more important and professionalized, but I'm not sure that the problem that we have in the media is that too many people are in it. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's kind of the opposite problem. <laughs> what you said is 100% true, and but we should uh, not tackle the system. But what is being a journalist today? Uh, I can have an I can be a photographer and have an Instagram page and still tell a narrative mm -hmm. and to still tell stories. I don't need a permit to get an audience. I don't need a permit to tell a story or to have the will or the drive to tell something. Uh, if I go back to Canal and my experience at Canal, that I think is one uh, special project in the city or in the country that someone, in this case, Juan, created a TV channel 12 years ago about culture and creativity with no studios um, uh, that was creating content that was online, a generation that was putting stuff online and we bring it back to television to give them the stage. And I don't know if I'm being incorrect by saying this, but I think no one at Canal ever had a journalist license and it still operates. Uh, uh, I have, I follow several photographers or illustrators or designers that has a, politi a political point of view or that can tell me stories or underrepresented topics uh, through their aesthetics and through their vision and they don't have a journalistic um, uh, license. So you would say that having a journalism license is not like it's kind of out of touch or it's not necessary anymore. I think if you want, if you have the drive and the will to tell stories, it should not be an obstacle for you. But I think uh, there are things in life, especially for a younger generation, even younger than I, that uh, having a Twitter account doesn't mean that you need to have a license to. Uh, uh, and what is being a journalist today? Someone that is the front line of the discussion, the kids that are now... Uh, uh, fighting for climate and producing content about it and telling narratives about it. Do they even have an age to work? It is considered working uh, mm -hmm. age or working time. Well, or do they get paid for it is uh, the thing, right? So what we have to discuss is one thing is getting money and getting paid and have a job. Yeah. One thing is the will to uh, or the drive to develop narratives and to tell stories. Uh, so the, the license becomes... When, it's, when you're talking about money, I think. But I agree there's another way to get paid. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's we Patreon. All know, we all know. I'm not saying that it's the dream position because it's really hard. And we all know two or three su success cases and they are 20 or 100 unsuccess cases. But I think it should not be an obstacle. Well, Tina, you were just talking about uh, this with me. That's a, that has been also your personal experience, right? You started a blog and then you got a job out of it. Yeah, I mean, I was one of those people that didn't go to journalism school in Germany, uh, didn't speak good German, didn't have any of the things I would need to be successful there in the media field. And I mean, but I also work at a startup, right? I work at a place that uh, doesn't work in those kind of institutional barriers. And we started as a journalism network, not as an outlet. Mm -hmm. So for me, it did work to start just producing stuff that I wanted to make. But I think that that was an important point that you made, like that this skill of storytelling, that's something that not only is not exclusive to journalists, but also shouldn't be, 
Like, I don't think we want a society when journalists are our only storytellers. Mm-hmm. But there's other kind of skills that journalists have, too, that now have been much more, dis- you know, distributed. Like this group of people that do OSINT, online investigations. But even people who kind of monitor things and tweet about court cases or follow protests and things like that. There's a lot of people that have taken on this journalism tasks. I mean, in Nigeria, you saw the Lucky Gate massacre was actually live streamed over Instagram by Mm -hmm. an influencer, among other people. That would have traditionally been journalism's job. But I think they go through the cracks of things that are available. Also, these ways in which journalism can be very exclusive, but also the ways in which governments keep things hidden there's people who have figured out how to get into all of those spaces. So I definitely think like we shouldn't have the sole proprietary use of all these journalism skills. We need to share it. Citizen investigators are a really important team member, I think, for the journalism field, for creatives as well. And there's so many different ways to tell a story via podcasting, via art, via music, via writing that it should not we should expand, not constrict. Mm hmm. At the same time, I would argue that it is fundamental to have independent media that go beyond, you know, the big establishment ones. And Portugal scores really low in Europe when it comes to that. Uh, Luis, you've already mentioned your experience at Canal. But how hard was it to set up an independent TV channel? It was quite hard, especially because we had to, uh, and João was leading it, we had to find like a business model that we could finance ourselves through the production of um, uh, not advertising, but client work. And and we had, our team was always in two worlds. For one side, playing on the editorial side, and on the same day, we're also doing commercial work about something else, but using the, the kind of aesthetic and the look that we had, the cool side that we had at Canal. But it's quite hard. For example, recently there was one independent group of um, platforms, let's say, or, or media platforms in Lisbon that was finalizing that fundraising that will allow us to survive for the next year mm-hmm. uh, that could pay the minimum wage or something a little bit above to two or three staff members to work. So it's kind of complex. And, and when you said Portugal is scoring really low on that, it's something that I don't know is because of um, this idea that to be a journalist or to have a journalist point of view, you need to be a journalist or that you need to do it as a second job or as a hobby in a country with a low minimum wage, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. that uh, you don't have a lot of time or energy for your hobby uh, or for the relevance of your hobby. But it's something that it's for a country that is in Europe since the beginning. It's something that is uh, critical for the actual society and especially for future generations. And- I mean, that's the problem, right? Is that on the one hand, everyone is aware of the fact that media and especially the news is necessary for an informed democratic society. And that in that respect, it's kind of a public good. And yet nobody wants to pay for it or we're expected to either pay for it through advertisements, which are often hooked together with corporate interests or political interests and lobbying interests, or to fund it through fundraising from nonprofit groups, which means that some section of your nonprofit media outlet needs to be concerned full-time with generating income through fundraising, mm-hmm. which is also not what you ideally want to do if you're a journalism outlet, right, is give up two or three people for fundraising or to be doing that half-time while you write the news the other time. So I think at one point we have to recognize it's a public good. It should be publicly funded. Yeah, I agree with that. 
Um, still, Canal 180 does a great job. I was just at their office yesterday. Their content is cool, but it's also culturally poignant. Uh, what is one story about the city that stayed with you uh, during your time at Canal 180? I can always mention the relation between Canal, the city, and the music festival, kind of huge one, Primavera Sounds, uh, when they came to Portugal 10 years ago, I think, or now this year, 11 years ago, 2012. Because for, for an entity, then Canal, looking at the festival as Primavera 10 years ago, when it came to the city, something coming from the broad for the first time, going outside Barcelona into a small region like Porto Festival, with this cultural scene like willing to get to know the bands or the artists. And it it allow us to collaborate with a lot of local artists. It allow us to tell a lot of stories about what is the music and the cultural scene that is hosting the, the event. It allows us also to partner with international platforms like Pitchfork to help them discovering the city or putting artists like Courtney Barnett playing in a balcony and doing a barbecue in the designer's house. So... Um, What we try to do is also to take a look at these opportunities and, and always relate the outsiders with the insiders and, and create this tension between what is new and fresh and what is local and already here, what are old cultures and new cultures and how can we clash them and make things thrive. And at the end, we're educating both sides. The ones that are coming are not just coming as tourists or as outsiders that spend a couple of days or hours or weeks, years and go out. But the ones that are here are kind of hosts and presenting and, and collaborating and, and also opening new opportunities for future collaborations outside and abroad the city. So mm -hmm. it's something that we're all trying to do. Um, yeah, I would say anti-establishment is kind of like the, the common theme in Canal 180 content. And among the projects you've worked on, I would say that my favorite is representing the underrepresented. It's a 2018 documentary, um, and it is about pushing listeners uh, out of the out of establishment and and into listening into music that um, you know it's it's hidden. It's it's not your regular it's not your regular musicians that you will see in this documentary, and especially in an age that is dominated by algorithms and information bubble, uh, that is that is a talent. What was the thought process behind this project? The kind of vision that I talked previously, it was something that we're trying to do not only to our city, but or to the festival, in this case Primavera, that we collaborate with, but more uh, into every entity or place that we are working with or collaborating with. And we started a collaboration three years ago with a festival called Lugesu in the Netherlands. I actually work with the festival right now. Um, and it's a festival that its lineup, it's more against the algorithms in the way that there are no headliners. You're more as a discovery process. Uh, and in the music scene, you start realizing, uh, I once saw an interesting poster of the headliners playing in the world this year. So you have like, for example, the National, and it was like really big because it headlined 20, 20 festivals or 40 festivals on a specific year. Uh, and... Now with Spotify and all the platforms that we use to discover music, uh, we are discovering what we already know because the algorithm is thinking, oh, if you like this, probably you will like that. Uh, so there's the, our discovery process has been uh, guided uh, and there's a lot behind it. So representing the underrepresented is something that we found and Joe Marx was directing that, um, that film 
that uh, we realized that there's a music festival that will allow us to discover the undiscovered, uh, mm-hmm. at least for us. And, and, and for everyone, it's a different experience. Um, and it's something that is becoming more and more relevant. Even if we can cross it with society issues, we can cross it with political issues, uh, design, creative. Is, uh, and while we say that uh, uh, the, the niche are always, the sum of the niche are bigger than the, the majority. So if we start looking at the, what is un, not discovered yet, it'll allow us to have a broader journey, a broader knowledge. But it comes back a little bit to storytelling because think about how different it is when like Spotify pushes a song and you get really into that song and you listen to it a couple times, then you forget completely it exists, right? But if you're at a concert and you see a band and you kind of know a little bit about the story of that band, you know, the way they present themselves, the way they perform, you might become like a lifelong fan in a way that you don't just on the basis of one song that really caught your ears in the algorithm, you know? Even this experience, nowadays, you go to a place, you buy a ticket to go to a place to know what you are already expecting to see. There are people that want like to go to the cinema w- without watching the trailer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the, One of them. Me too. <laughs> I love yeah. the trailers, see? No, otherwise, but sometimes when you have a lot of doubts and you have to take a decision because you have to see one film at once, you have to take a decision and maybe watch a little bit or read a little bit. Of course, you can also do that in the music scene, but imagine you're going to just buy a ticket for a festival and you see 20 names and you know know them, or 40 names, in this case, 115. Uh, And you you might not like it, but at least you have the option to try it. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, I think one of the motives behind it is like, it's way more music around there than the one we know, so give it a try. That's the the underrepresented idea. And if we want to cross it with the media scene, that's way more stories to tell than the ones that are being told by the major players. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's kind of one of our keywords too, but uh, representing the underrepresented, but also that underrepresentation leads to misrepresentation. You know, I think we have a little bit of a mission to also fight back against stereotypes and prejudices. So we are often looking for stories where we can kind of complicate things that unbiased the news and give a little bit more context behind like, something that might just be portrayed very like sensationally. For instance, we did a story about um, Kenya where some women have been beaten during maternity, uh, during giving birth, which is like a very shocking pitch to receive. Mm -hmm. And we worked together with the author to go like way beyond that initial story to find out like, what is the context of this? It was so much more complicated than just this one thing of like, yeah, doctors and nurses are sort of abusing some of the women it had to do with the corruption at the hospitals. It had to do with an effort to actually reduce maternal mortality in Kenya, the ways that that was constricting what nurses and doctors could do. So it was very, very complicated. And we have a lot of stories like that. And that's, for me, the most interesting kind of story. I, I think it's it's easy to get the sensational thing, but I like it the most when you can go beyond something sensational to understand why things are happening, to give you really context and background about things, because that for me is what's missing in most news. And social inclusivity in the media um, is also a problem in Portugal, again, uh, as a country that scores lower than, than most in this sense. What can and should be done about it, you think, Luis? Maybe I'm being basic on my observation, but also in an educational level. And I'm on the education process of how do you educate someone to become a journalist, the dependency of the license, the dependency on the structure. 
becoming a journalist nowadays is more becoming active in your society. It's becoming pointing the finger or pointing into what's worth to 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 point and and something that you identify that is worth to explore. And because we have we're now living on this duality that if you are a self journalist, let's say you're alone and unpaid, and if you go to a big structure, you go not not big structure. If you go into a journalistic structure, you go to find a job. So even to find a job, there's this unbalance and misrepresentation. Uh, uh, so uh, on the journalist side, you have misrepresentation on jobs. As a consequence, you have misrepresentation uh, of different genders, different races, different cultures on the journalistic sector. So, but they are, and um, especially I think more in Lisbon and in Porto, and also because of the a lot of race issues and history regions uh, now in Portugal, because of uh, the relation we have um, uh, with uh, African countries and African cultures and, and, and this, this understanding of the cultural appropriation, etc. There is more, uh, there's a stronger and really interesting movement, uh, uh, probably more based in, as organizations in, in Lisbon, uh, as a bigger city, metropolitan city, that are doing uh, incredible work, but I think there, there's still a lot to do. So it's a structural so, issue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just uh, generally speaking, when you to look at a media atmosphere and see that it's rather homogenous, then obviously you need to look at like who's missing and why. Because mm -hmm. again, like I said, if you are not represented the media, then most likely they're misrepresenting you in some way. You know. Also, when you talk about these kind of colonial relationships, that would also be something I think is really worth exploring to draw people out. And then what has also come up a couple of times is like the shadow of the history of fascism. If I would be working here and trying to diversify this this scene, I would be thinking about colonialism and thinking about the history of the dictatorship and how these things have an impact that still lives on, whether they do, and if they do, in what ways can we change that or, uh, or at least be open about it and understand it? I think it's about openness. We miss that openness. There's no kind of events or platforms that we can gather or kind of explain that... Uh, there are other ways of telling the words, putting the words out. There are other ways to collaborate. You don't need to be a major player uh, to 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 organize and to organize people to tell stories. And I think there's a lack. Uh, there's university, then you go to internship, then you get a license, then you go to work into a main newspaper. But I think, again, there are other ways to tell stories. I'm not saying that you're going to be well paid or not but <laughs> like video wise photo wise illustration wise there's a, a very creative and interesting ways to get an audience to tell a narrative rather than just the written world like the visual world is more translatable than the written world and you broke a barrier uh, and also how do we integrate the foreigns the ones that come here for three, six months, a year, two years, from I don't maybe I'm using the incorrect word, <laughs> but high developed economies or richer economies that can bring us 
I'm not going to say they can bring us knowledge, but can also bring us an audience and a point of view and a perspective. So how can we cross it with our scene? How can we learn and teach? And how can we become vulnerable in the way that we go into an area that we don't know yet where it's going to lead us, but at least we should give it a try uh, when we are in the moment with a huge gap that was already mentioned here that we are very not well represented in the media scene with independent players with low tax low um, percentage of diversity so it means that we're not, not telling the story so if we're not telling the story we're not being critical enough so we're not progressing in the right direction um so we're here as part of the circle project and therefore we're here to help creatives set set up their own new independent media hub through workshops funds and mentoring Uh, you talked a little bit about that, Luis, in terms of hopes uh, about the future outcome of this. But Tina, what are you hoping for? Yeah, I mean, I, I want people to do something that uh, when we leave, they want to do. You know, I don't <laughs> want to. I think that that's the unique thing about the Circle Project is that each city really has different needs and structures and gaps. What I already noticed, though, is um, kind of pushing it against these ideas that there's a lot of interest to skill share. There's a lot of interest to get back out into the community and to also break against this kind of barrier that like journalism has to be this one kind of thing. And I think that's really interesting. I also hope that um, that might be an avenue. I mean, what you were just mentioning about how uh, people maybe keep to themselves when they're foreigners from countries, you know, if they're working remotely, if they're whatever, there's a, there's a divide. But if you go to other countries where the people who are coming are from lower economic, uh, economically developed countries, it's the opposite kind of situation, you still have that divide. And I think that the way that you bridge this is by people need to feel invited to join in part of your culture. They need to feel wanted and welcomed. And um, this can create so many really interesting relationships and collaborations and experiences, even if people do eventually leave. Still, they have a much warmer feeling towards your city, towards your country, if they felt like welcomed and invited while they were there. And I just think like communities are always intangible and fast moving and people are always coming and going. You have to kind of create something where anyone who comes in at any time and for however long they're there feels part of it. That those are the communities that feel the most that are the most amazing, that have the most creative potential or the ones where it's not dependent on one person leaving for or staying it is a, a place where the community itself is kind of this living organism. And I can see that there's a lot of hunger and excitement to kind of get more out into the actual community, to get more knowledge about what's happening culturally, to meet in person, to integrate different age groups, to integrate different groups of people that are here in the city. And I think that that willingness is also interesting from the history of Portugal generally being one of the most diverse countries in Europe forever, having like one of the first kind of places where you could see people from all over the world walking around. Why not like really embrace that history and create something new? That was my last question. Uh, thank you so much, Tina and Luis, for this beautiful episode. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. I hope you got inspired by the creative media scene in Porto. Don't forget to follow us on social media for the latest updates on our traveling project.